Welcome to Kicking Off with me, John Mills. In today's episode, I'm joined by Blair Evans, who is an associate professor at Penn State University. Blair runs the team lab and is interested in how interpersonal relationships influence things such as physical activity levels and positive youth development. Okay, uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Blair Evans. Uh, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to be here. So I start every episode by asking my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. Yeah, so yeah, so I'll give my background. Currently, I'm an assistant professor at Penn State University um, in the U.S. Um, my background, I guess my academic background, um, I'm originally Canadian and uh, went to actually an undergraduate sports psychology program. And so I've been interested and involved in sports psychology uh, for quite a while now. And um, uh, and although my early interest was especially in applied sports psychology and the potential applications, uh, working with athletes and coaches, kind of over time, I've... Um, become more and more focused on some of the, the I guess, the, the research evidence background, um, and then also more generally in the study of groups uh, and in psychology as a whole. Um, so, so I think that's probably my background. Uh, I did my education. My PhD was at Wilfrid Laurier University, um, uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Queen's University, and I've been at Penn State now in the kinesiology department uh, for five years. Um, and, I, and I guess I'll add, you know, my focus is on, uh, I guess, social influences and sport and exercise, generally speaking. Um, a lot of my focus is on group dynamics and how uh, small groups um, actually influence our health behaviors and um, kind of our, our choices and attitudes related to health, whether that involves how, how others influence our risk behaviors like drinking or risky health behaviors, um, how belonging to groups might influence our physical activity behaviors, um, kind of generally speaking, following the social influence line of interest. Um, although I, I, I guess my interests are also varied, extending at times into coaching, um, uh, disability sport, trying to promote uh, positive experiences within disability sport uh, and other um, topics as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's one of the things that uh, made me so interested to talk to you about that, that breadth of interests that you have and uh, and the, the papers you've been working on over the last couple of years, certainly at least um, it, it, there is. There is a broad topic, and it's uh, there are a broad range of topics that you're covering. Um, so, but what what kind of led you into this world in the first place? 
My first interest, I, it's kind of even interesting. It extends back to even when I was in high school. I went to uh, the, we had a field trip for my physical education class where we went to a library and it seemed totally normal at the time. We all went to a library as a high school class uh, uh, and we were all expected to do research and for some reason I went down and uh, into the library and I was off on my own and I dug up a bunch of uh, the sports psychologist uh, journal issues and found articles on imagery. Um, and again, it, it's kind of funny now because I look back on that and of course, like all the other, you know, high school students I went there with hung out with one another and they, when they might've found some books and things like that, some more general books. And meanwhile, I'm digging up journal articles and looking at, uh, um, you know, things like imagery and, and whatnot. And that kind of was my, my first interest and kind of went from there. Um, and then as far as my interest in pursuing this as a profession, um, I think the other thing is I just realized that I was, I was a curious um, undergraduate student. I, I found myself asking a lot of questions like in class. Um, I had a group dynamics uh, undergraduate course with Mark Eyes when he was at, at Laurentian University. Um, and, um, I, I would sit in that class and I'd put, you know, research questions in the margins of, of my notes, um, things that I'd wish to ask. And I, you know, I was a thesis student, so, um, so I, I did have to create a thesis, but I was writing every time I thought about something, I'd put ideas for research ideas. So I think it's, some of that's been in my, my bones for a long time. So that's, I think that curiosity is probably what drove me in, in into this field. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, like, so did you play sport? Was there, obviously there, there must've been something that drew you to those journal articles in the first place. They're like, uh, to, <laughs> to, to read, to read the sports psychologist. You're not that you like, no one's just picking up the sports psychologist without some kind of, uh, intrinsic motivation to actually learn more about sport at that point, surely. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I was definitely a sampler as far as, uh, my sport backgrounds. So, uh, so developing, I had a family, I guess my broader family, my aunt, um, and my uncle both were elite athletes in their own, um, context in golf and in football and, uh, or I guess American football, I should say. Um, (laughs) but, uh, uh, I, my own sport background was probably throughout high school. Mostly it was basketball. I, I'd had early experiences in, in soccer and in, and in hockey, but um, I was a basketball player throughout most of high school. Uh, when I went to university, I tried and, and, and failed to make my university team. Um, but I was a bit of a gym rat and a physical activity guy and pretty quickly um, I was in Northern Ontario um, at a school where there's lots of snow and and things. So I ended up um, joining the cross-country ski team. And so throughout my undergraduate education and my master's as well, I did uh, cross-country ski racing. And then so since then, I'm more of an endurance sport guy. So I think that's most of uh, But, uh, you know, of course, I, I just I love love sport generally. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you've uh, – it sounds like – your own sporting experiences and the, the the sports you actually enjoy doesn't it doesn't sound like uh, it's particularly team based or group based very often if it's uh, like endurance cross country skiing or uh, but so where where's that interesting teams come from 
Well, I think some of it was actually that, I guess, the con- contrary to what you're, what you indicated in a lot of ways, because, you know, I, um, I was at the university, I had some friend groups, um, and then, a, another fellow f- from my residence was on the ski team. So I started training with them and I just started loving the group that I was with, um, all the other students, um, we got along really well and I really looked forward to going to training, learning about skiing, um, that group, um, you know, early on, they, you know, I had a lot of fun with them. And so I, you know, the the amount of help that they gave me to help me learn about skiing and just, um, that very much became how I defined myself a lot through, through my college years, university years. So I think that some of that part of it is, um, very much about part of my passion for groups. And especially in my PhD, I studied, um, especially, in interpersonal influences within an individual sports setting where we often presume that there aren't, there isn't that much of a team environment, but often just like any other activity, that social influence is uh, powerful. Mm. I guess it's more from the training perspective, right? Like you, that you've touched upon there rather than the actual. Yeah. The training piece, the, um, you know, providing social support and help. And then even sometimes during competition with cross country skiing, um, the morning of, you know, you arrive at the race early, especially at the university level where you don't have people to test your wax and you rely on one another and your coaches to figure out the wax that morning. So you're going out, you're testing wax, you're sharing information, you're getting back. Um, then, you know, you start the race. And if you're not racing, usually you're on the side of the course, especially if it's an individual start race where everyone um, completes the course individually. Um, you're out there giving people splits and giving them feedback on what they need to be, um, you know, where they're sitting uh, amidst their competitors as far as as their race. So um, there are even some parts of teamwork, you know, right before top competition and, and afterwards. Nice. I'm probably just sharing my ignorance of skiing, to be honest. I uh, I took my wife and my uh, little boy skiing a couple of months back in, uh, in well, in January, actually, to uh, to Norway. That was my first experience of of skiing, and that was just falling over a lot. So uh, I think uh, the idea of waxing <laughs> skis and that kind of stuff that that was the guy in the in the ski shop dealt with all of that for me. My entire first year on the ski team involved a lot of falling over. That's uh, it means you're doing it right. Yeah, well, I'm not sure they would agree, but uh, <laughs> so uh, so what do you follow any team sport? You know, being at Penn State. Um, I really also, you, you're, uh, thrust into following college sports. So, um, it's, it is a pretty great environment being at a, a big 10 institution. That's the, you know, the athletic, uh, division that we're within. Um, you know, a lot of the schools have really diverse sport programs. So I love the football games are a ton of fun. It's an experience in and of itself, but a lot of other sports are great. Um, you know, I, follow along with women's volleyball closely. We have a good program here. Uh, wrestling is strong here. We have a great hockey team. So a lot of NCAA sports I follow. And then I occasionally, you know, I'll check in with uh, whether it's the NHL or the NFL and sports like that at the more international scale or national international scale. But yeah. Who, who are your teams? Do you want to give that away or is it a closely guarded team? I, 
I'm usually agnostic about which team. I usually I'm, I'm usually more clear on which teams I'm not. So like in the NHL, I take a take great passion in, in teasing people about uh, cheering for the Maple Leaf, Toronto Maple Leafs. So, <laughs> and what about the uh, NFL? Um, uh, it's hard, probably hard to say. And the NFL, the tough thing is, uh, I'm in a fantasy league, so you end up actually cheering for players instead of teams and uh uh, yeah and it becomes a weird weird type of environment so so i was a patrick mahomes fan this year (laughs) it was a bad year (laughs) patrick mahomes fan no so um let's uh let's talk about your phd then you kind of touched upon it before so um so what what was your phd on again yeah uh, so i focused on um I initially entered in with just a curiosity about how, you know, a lot of the literature within group dynamics within sport kind of made this dichotomy between individual and team sport. And, you know, the the message from earlier, you know, it's kind of, and there's kind of conflicting um, thoughts about it. So a lot of intuitively, when you would read a paper, there'd be a lot of content that would either you know, emphasizing that they're the, the teams that they involved within their study were interdependent or um, in meaning team sport or, you know, intuitive stuff, even early on in some of the writings by Bert, um, by Bert Karen and colleagues uh, that basically emphasize that if you don't have task interdependence, um, so you, you don't have to work together uh, during the sport competition, like you might see in soccer or hockey, something like that. Um, that your that cohesion isn't going to be as important or valuable, but then that conflicted often with um, even with empirical studies and meta analyses that showed that uh, you know if you compare the association between cohesion and performance in both individual sport and team sport, um, there was usually a significant and positive association there, or there tended to be, um, and so that that meta analysis w- was conducted a while ago, but really. Um, made me curious. So, um, so and there hadn't been a, a whole time that I'd unpack that. So I kind of jumped into it. I, I used um, a, a framework at looking at inter- interdependence from organizational psychology. So looking at how, if you're in a work group or if you are in a work workplace setting, um, you know, work studying the role of interdependence in that environment. And then also using a lens of looking at interdependence from education, where uh, largely and historically, if you look back in, especially in the United States, but other places, it was a very individualist or even kind of survival of the fittest education system that was really pushed. Mm -hmm. And then especially leading in from the 70s and on, um, educational psychologists in a lot of different settings realized the value of cooperative education and of actually... Um, relying on opportunities for students to um, to actually have to work together uh, to learn uh, for a lot of different benefits. So I used those lenses and applied them to sport, and and both did some qualitative research where I just you know asked elite level athletes about how they viewed the role of their their teammates on their 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 personal experiences, and that varied. Um, you know, some athletes, when they talked about it, focused on the bigger meaning behind sport and how their teammates influenced that. Um, 
And then there was another set of athletes who looked at it from a more practical or logistical standpoint. But generally speaking, most of these athletes really viewed their their teammates as having a big role. Um, I also did uh, correlational and experimental research where I looked at the, the unique role of uh, especially task interdependence in terms of, you know, do you actually demand, do you, does your sport, sport involve moments where you actually have to work together? Uh, whether it's team sport versus individual sport, or even some individual sports do require types of task interdependence, um, you know, certain times in the season with rowing or in a relay event, things like that. Um, also, we looked at collective outcome interdependence in terms of do you share a competitive outcome? And then also individual outcome interdependence, which involves do you compete against one another in events? And that's an interesting one because you would assume that that type of competition um, is probably negative, but we actually found that, especially if you if you pair it with uh, having a collective outcome, it can actually lead to more cooperation because you know you're kind of all in it together. So you know I compared those, and you know a classic example of the differences within individual sport uh, might involve, let's say, if you're um, a cross country running team those teams tend to have both a cooperative, um, you know, a team level cooperative goal and a setting where everyone competes in the same event. Um, and if you were to compare that, let's say with a national level wrestling team, you would have everyone in different weight classes who belong to that team. And in certain international events, you might not even have any collective team outcome. There's no winning team or losing team. It's all at an individual level. So, um, those create different pressures. Um, and so that was really what I focused on, uh, during my dissertation. Yeah. And it sounds like you, uh, you got through plenty of research, uh, during that time, which is uh, always good. Uh, so there was, there's, there was lots there that I kind of want to dig into, but, um, the, the thing that initially jumped out is you were talking about, uh, the organizational literature and, and, um, the fact that you've, I think you mentioned the fact that you're applying this with your uh, students to a certain extent. Um, like I'd, I'd be interested to hear um, like how you go about doing that. Yeah, it, it can kind of go a number of different ways. I think from a bigger per perspective, um, if you look at, and if you're trying to study the, the, the nature of, of sport teams and groups and how members either cooperate, influence one another's uh, motivation or even how they perform optimally as a group, uh, there's different literatures you can draw from. And often the, the probably the closest parallel might be to other settings where you have to have members who interact with one another and actually have to perform tasks together. So, uh, you know, in some cases, organizational psychology might look at, um, you know, broad kind of work, you know, any kind of broad workplace setting, but often some of the really close parallels might be within, let's say, uh, medical teams who actually have to work together to, let's say, in critical care or in um, mm -hmm. military teams such as, um, you know, um, sure. uh, pilots who have to work together and do, um, do tasks in that kind of environment. And certainly, I think there is a lot of cross-pollination that happens. Uh, even Luke Martin, um, a close colleague of mine, you know, in the past several years has developed partnerships with um, kind of the Canadian um, kind of acrobatic um, 
you know, high speed jet team that, that do um, really magnificent things in the air. And they're all uh, pilots, I believe, uh, linked to the military. And he's used that context to explore group dynamics in a lot of ways that we can learn from within sport. Um, and of course, it doesn't always go from the organizational setting to sport. There's a lot of things that we can learn and that we have ready access to in sport uh, or even exercise that can be, you know, that can inform organizational settings. Um, you know, even if you look earlier on, there was evidence about, you know, the links between uh, the emotions uh, within team sport. I think it was a classic cricket study um, that was, you know, looked at shared emotions and, and moods throughout the course of a cricket competition. And that was published in a really large organizational you know, primarily organizational psychology journals. So it does go both ways. Um, and I just think that that, if you're looking for a great context to, to, to study groups in, I don't think there's, there's probably many better settings often than, than sport, um, um, for, for certain topics. Yeah, absolutely. What well, does, um, I think it's Maureen Weiss, uh, calls it a naturalistic laboratory, right, for moral education, but it doesn't necessarily have to be um, for moral education alone. I think, I think we would both argue that it's uh, it's a good environment for developing social skills and and um, personal skills more broadly. Yeah, yeah. And so even in the moral side, there's there's a lot of overlap there. If you look from the group processes to even the moral types of processes that I that I know that that you study in terms of you know, you have this, a really rare thing, especially if you're looking at youth development, there aren't many cases, uh, you know, youth participate in lots of groups as they develop, but there probably aren't many cases early on where you belong to a group that, you know, has a clear sh outcome usually that you're working towards and where you have really clearly defined um, opponents. Um, I think sport is one of those early experiences in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. So, how has your how has your work developed since since your PhD? Um, probably some of the ways that my work's developed since my PhD is in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's you know when I did my postdoctoral fellowship um, at Queen's University, I, I was I belonged to two different research groups. One was Jean Cote focused on youth sport um, and youth, positive youth development. And working with Amy Latimer Chung uh, within the context of positive experiences in disability sport. So in one way, uh, my work, you know, early on it was with more elite teams, and my work has shifted in some ways, either study youth development or um, disability sport or other contexts, um, and the ways that that groups can influence us. Um, and probably the other way is an increasing really big focus, you know, even though, you know, my dis dissertation work was on interpersonal influences. So how belonging to a team might influence our motivation or our performance, really zoning in and trying to unpack the mechanisms through which our teams might influence our attitudes and our behaviors. So, um, especially for physical yeah. activity behavior, um, recent, uh, graduate student who were, um, Scott Gropensberger, who's now at the University of Washington, um, you know, his big focus, especially was on risk, uh, risk behaviors for college students and alcohol use and how those are maybe influenced by teammates. And then a current graduate student, uh, Michael Panza, um, is very much focused on how uh, adolescent sport teammates influence mental health and well-being. So 
um, really trying to focus in on how, especially the thing I'm most interested in is usually the mechanism through which our teammates influence us and our peers influence us. Like that's obviously talking about some of these like health behaviors and um, I know impression management and things comes up a lot within that, that area of the literature. So uh, like, how do you balance these kinds of, I know they're not, uh, they're not distinct, but they are reasonably distinct areas of, of interest. Uh, I know there's this one theme around the, the group binds them together, but um, like, how do you juggle having these, like these, I suppose it's kind of a continuum of interest, right? Uh, there's probably a mixture. I don't know if balance might not be the word because, I, you know, there are sometimes I probably stretched my interest too thin, but, um, but I just, you know, there's a lot of areas that, that excite me. And I feel like as long as I have a skill set that I contribute to a project, then um, if my passion's there, then, then, then I follow my nose and, 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 and get into it and, and dive into it. And I often find that there are certain things that contribute uh, from my perspective. So I think, you know, being the group guy is a big thing. I think the methods that come along with being a group's researcher uh, suit themselves well for other settings as well. So for example, um, multi-level modeling has now become very much an expectation. So the, the principle behind this is that if you're studying a sample of 300 people that all belong to groups and you're measuring their perceptions of their groups, um, two people who belong to the same group, their responses are going to be more similar to one another than one person from that group uh, compared to someone from another group. So you are violating some of the typical principles of data analysis that you have two independent, totally unique data points. Um, they're closely linked. So what that means is you have to do some more sophisticated analyses to account for the fact that people are based in small groups. Um, so, be, you know, by virtue of that and the other analyses I developed, you know, strengths I developed, for example, in social network analysis, what that means is, you know, there's people in other settings that come across the same problem. So if you are doing a study where you're tracking people who give you numerous responses uh, over time, um, so you're having lots of individual cluster responses clustered together. Um, if you're doing another type of study, let's say in positive youth development, but happens to involve you know, youth who belong to groups, um, all of these settings kind of, you know, you maybe look towards the groups person uh, in that setting. So, you know, that's partly, but, mm -hmm. but that probably doesn't account for all of my collaborations. And I probably stretch myself out too thin in terms of different areas sometimes, but uh, that's also the most fun that I have um, working with some of these groups that I've had the opportunity to work with. I think that's what's drawn me into academia and helped keep me here is very much the community um, that I've had the chance to work with. So I think that's um, you know, being able to work with students who have tons of pa passion for these topics and uh, fostering, you know, lifelong relationships. That's kept me here for sure. Yeah. I think, I think, everybody has different um, goals from what they want to get from this, right? Like if you want to follow your curiosity, yeah. I'm, I'm very much of a similar mindset. Um, yeah, there's a lot of benefit to to doing deep work in a, in a given context. And I think that, you know, if, if for any student um, or researcher or, you know, early academic, of course, you really want to focus on making sure you have 
at least one, if not two, really clear lines of interest that are progressive, that build upon one another. And there's a ton of value in that, whether it's for marketing yourself or for acquiring funding to be able to prove that you can do that. Um, so, so that is important. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, some of the, the work that I'm most proud of just happened to be what seemed at the time to be one-off or seemed at the time to be just something that interested me, um, but has produced really um, cool work that that's built upon itself. Um, and then sometimes you end up looking back and you're like, oh, hey, that really fits in my line of work after all. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think that's, that's often the, the case, right? That um, at the time, perhaps it, it's not as obvious um, that there is this thread running through the work, but actually taking that step back often you do think, oh, actually, do you know what? This is much more uh, closely related to the original idea. Okay, cool. Well, um, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And um, when we come back, I will uh, ask you a couple of questions, play a quick game, and then uh, we'll wrap things up. Awesome. That sounds great. Okay, so welcome back. Um, so, Blair, I asked you to uh, think of three fun facts, uh, two of which are true, one of which is false, and I'm going to try to guess which one is false. Um, I've not had a lot of success so far with these, so uh, given that we don't know each other particularly well, I'm not holding much hope on this occasion either, but we'll give it a go. I know a little bit more about you after the, the first uh, 25 minutes of our chat, so... Fingers crossed. So over to you. What are your three fun facts? Okay. I will start with fact number one, that I have a passion for learning different languages. And so I now have the ability to uh, not only handle English and French being Canadian, but I've also um, worked uh, on my skill set for uh, both Spanish and German um, over the past years. So that's fun fact number one. Fun fact number two nice. is that I am a Canadian and American uh, poetry enthusiast and that I have a collection of about um, probably 40 or 50 books from the, the mid-1900s uh, from authors I like. Fun fact number three is that when I was in high school, I um, led a group uh, for my, I, in my small town's uh, lip sync competition that was an annual event um, associated with our picnic and that we won four years in a row um, throughout high school, except for the fact that the, pro the competition was designed for public school kids. Uh, we, we somehow were allowed to compete and won four years in a row. Uh, bef before I even attempt to guess, I'm just going to put it out there that you've won this. This you've won this competition. Uh, this is by far and away the, the best three facts <laughs> that we've had so far. <laughs> um, I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. Um, I'm going to go with the languages being the lie on the assumption that it sounds the most plausible of the three. So uh, yeah, 
you're right. That is the lie. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so you, you did win a lip-syncing challenge four years on the run. <laughs> yeah, so we, we had... Uh, I grew up in a small town called Poplar Hill in uh, southern Ontario. And there was a public school picnic that was every June. It was like the highlight of my life. And I tried a couple times in public school and kept losing. And so when I got into high school, my friend and I, uh, we actually... I, grew up on an asparagus farm. And so we were picking asparagus as my best friend and he would pick after school with me every day and I'd pay a minimum wage, um, which gives me a hard time though. But we were out there and we decided, we're like, you know what we should do? We should do the lip sync contest. And at that time we were in grade <laughs> nine and, uh, and then we won and then we kept doing it. And then by the end, the, the people who ran the contest were like, all right, you guys can still come at a, uh, volunteer basis but we're not going to uh, judge you anymore by the end of it but nice yeah, we, did, uh, sweet, we did sweet caroline joy to the world um well, i can't even think of the other two right now but yeah so it was quite the quite the time and a big poetry guy as well yep yep so especially canadian poetry but also american now that i'm here and i usually try to find uh the small individual, either a chat book or a small book, but, uh, but yeah, so nice. Nice. Well, I feel like I know you better already now, uh, after this, after the little <laughs> game, we could have led with that. And I, I feel like I've known you a lot better. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, let's, let's just talk a bit about, um, just some of the things that you're most proud of within your career. Uh, just the last couple of questions and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. So, um, so I often, when I'm talking to researchers, frame this as a paper, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it could be any kind of product. Maybe you've developed some kind of app or uh, some kind of training program or something like that. Uh, any kind of output that you're most proud of as a, as a researcher? Yeah. One of the, I'll go with, uh, as, as far as one that I definitely look back and I see uh, some of the work behind it that I'm proud of was, would probably go into my work with Amy Latimer Chung and Kathleen Martin Guinness and colleagues with that group where um, during my postdoc, it started as, you know, an initial opportunity, you know, opportunity to join on a, an ongoing project. And um, definitely it was mm -hmm. entailing unpacking um, what kind of a rich quality experience looks like within disability sport. And uh, I did a pile of reading and, you know, it, it's a pretty substantial question to try to identify and vague sometimes. Um, but certainly the idea is the focus for a lot of health promotion has been to get people with disabilities involved in sport and uh, sometimes ignoring the fact that those experiences are benign or negative. Um, the thing that I'm most proud of about that work, though, is, is less the what I did and more what was done through those uh, through that network of colleagues uh, in that um, I definitely learned through that project, the process of knowledge translation and community partnerships throughout that work, so, which enabled both, you know, a lot of the work we did for that involved interviews, um, online surveys with stakeholders to try to get feedback on, on the conceptualization, the ideas that we were coming up with. Um, and then it, in turn, it involved really rich knowledge translation of preparing materials to give out to community members and also to work with members like the Ontario Soccer Association um, to prepare their own manual for coaches in terms of integrating uh, youth with disabilities within their teams. Um, 
And so that work, you know, a lot of that partnership work had was stuff that I didn't have a hand in, but I really recognized um, whether it was students um, or other lead re- lead researchers involved with the team, how they managed those partnerships and how, you know, actually it was really meaningful for me to see other people using something that I had done in a real life setting. Um, so I'd say that's probably one of the works that, that I'm particularly proud of. Yeah, it sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds like that it's got that that perfect mixture of uh of good research like applied practice and also real high quality meaningful outcomes uh which is mm-hmm. if you can do that kind of work then happy days <laughs> so uh so what's one thing that you love about being a researcher i love uh the community um is probably one of the things that i most enjoy and and being able to have close colleagues where, um, you know, I can check in and people who care about my progression. And I especially recognize that community where, you know, in the past, over the past uh, couple of years, had some uh, health issues in my family. And and that's where sometimes the community reached out, even in a case where now that I'm in the U.S., not particularly close to some of the colleagues that I grew up with, you know, you know, you'd have a, a mm. package from a meal company end up at your door. Um, you ha- get emails, you get support, um, um, people, you know, jumping into action on ongoing projects that, that fell to the way- wayside a little bit where help push those things along. And I think that community is a huge part of why I love uh, doing what I do, whether that involves, you know, newer students and watching their passions develop and their interests develop or, you know, really long-term friendships with mentors or, or, other, you know, former students that I worked alongside that. Um, I think that's probably one of the things that keeps me in, in this game. And what's something that you hate about being a researcher? What do I hate? Um, or dislike. Hate's maybe a strong word. <laughs> yeah. Things. What do I dislike about this context? I would, Probably throw, um, trying to really work on this. I w- what I probably go with one of the characteristics that I, that I dislike probably more than others might have to go with um, the challenge and some of the barriers with being a researcher and the opportunity for applied practice and doing research with organizations. Um, I notice this particularly now that I'm in the U.S. Sometimes in Canada where. You know, I think that I have a product or, you know, a pr- project that, that would get the interest of, of different stakeholders. Um, but I think one of the challenges I, that I dislike with research is, you know, I, I just wish that those groups would be um, at the table and that there was no stigma there about a researcher coming in. And then that process of working with partners in the community and, and youth sport organizations in particular just went smoother. Um, you know, that's a big area of time taken up and just trying to almost market your work to try to get people interested in being involved and working with you. And I think if that barrier was broken down, it would make a lot of this work much more powerful and useful. Um, some of that barrier is what we do as researchers and making what we do, uh, not particularly useful for stakeholders, but another big chunk is that, um, there's kind of stigma around having a research team come in. And there's also, I think, um, often competing motives in youth sport organizations where they might not have interests that align with with what you would hope they would. So 
I think that's my one of my biggest struggles. Mm. And how how do we how do we go about fixing that? Because that's something that I I definitely agree with. That's kind of the research <laughs> practitioner divide, isn't it? Partly, um, but it's also the it's more of a systematic um, issue as well around the way that we work as as academics. So, like, have you got any ideas for how we would go about fixing that, or is that? Yeah, um, you know, I think it the steps to resolving it might not be as hard in some countries that have more integrated sports systems, like the UK, Australia, Canada, where you have more centralized organizations around sport like the FA in the UK where you know the FA is involved in some sport research and you have a more integrated process where you could do um, you could try to support some of those partnerships at a larger scale the the biggest challenge I find in the US is often that it's a very segregated if you look at competitive youth sport um, it's often a club-based system where you the each individual club, they come and go. Um, it's a money-making enterprise mm. and the clubs tend to be smaller and uh, focused around, you know, doing things that make money, like, you know, having youth uh, committed to a club year-round and doing those types of things. In that kind of context, you have to go one by one through clubs and create those those connections. So probably the, the fix from the researcher side would be to try to create... Mm maybe like larger scale connections with larger scale bodies, like uh, officials associations or kind of whatnot, but try to create larger programs rather than going what I've been doing, which is, you know, club by club. And you usually have to try to recruit about 20 to get one club signed on and interested in working with you um, on a study or an intervention. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I don't think the system's that dissimilar here to be fair uh, in the UK. Yeah. Um, I know from my experience, we, we we generally start by working with clubs and you build a reputation with clubs and then they know somebody else who knows somebody else and you kind of work, you end up working your way up from, from the bottom into the, working with the football association rather than going in at the top and then them helping you to, to filter down. But um, yeah, now I think there's always challenges, but um, it sounds like you're doing some fantastic research and, and uh yeah, I know you've got a, a little one and I've got a little one that's uh, keeps poking their head around the corner. So <laughs> I think it's probably a perfect time to, to wrap up there. So um, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. No, it was great joining this. And uh, and yeah, it was, I don't know, I, I love talking about myself, of course. So it's <laughs> a joy to be involved. Thanks very much. 